0: Fantastic. As I said before, my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. This is fun preaching in the round. Get my steps up for the day, and I'll do my best to continue to move and spin and make sure everyone gets uh, to see my face, not just my backside. Who was here Friday? Anyone here Friday? We had an amazing morning Friday morning, didn't we? Just a powerful time reflecting on all the Christ went through for us and um, I just wanted to, before we start, I just really wanted as a church uh, to thank all those people who contributed and gave so much time, effort, energy to making that happen, yeah. Putting on something like we did on Friday doesn't just happen. There's a huge amount of effort, um, even down to we, we didn't have like a lighting thing, so there's Joel and Simon literally unplugging and plugging in the lights every time we needed to go dark. Uh, very ghetto, but it was great. The reason we do something like Good Friday, the reason we do something like this, as I said on Friday morning, is that we just are utterly convinced that Jesus Christ is, is the Lord of Lords. We're utterly convinced that life is found in him. And so as we gather... Today, we're actually entering into part two of a message that I preached last week of a new series that we've started called Swords and Spears. Now, Swords and Spears is a series uh, around spiritual warfare. And last week, we, we took a moment to look at our adversary. We did a scouting report on our adversary, and it seems fitting that on Easter Sunday, we would arrive at part two of the tale of two lions, doesn't it? It seems fitting that in looking at our adversary last week, that this week we would have a look at our champion. And this series was really birthed, out of, I shared last week, it was birthed out of a moment for me in the shower, uh, where God just dropped that thought, swords and spears. And I've been reading around uh, David and, and that famous battle with Goliath and looking at what our church is going through at the moment and what God is doing in our church and recognising whenever you start to advance and take steps forward, then the, the enemy doesn't like that and he will come against us. So it came out of this Ephesians 6 and um, uh, 2 Corinthians and um, uh, Colossians 2 and, and 1 Samuel 17. I love that idea that uh, this story of David and Goliath and how David rocks up and he arrives at the battle and there's a giant who's just cussing out Israel, yeah? And he's just telling Israel uh, lies and deceit and he's standing there, as this big galoot, telling them that they don't have the victory, that they're going to lose and every single person in Israel is terrified of this giant, except for one. And we spoke about last week how perhaps the reason for that is because the rest of Israel saw the giant, heard the lies, and were afraid, whereas David actually saw behind the giant. That he actually recognised that the battle is not just physical, but that it's spiritual. And that behind the giant was a serpent. Yeah? Behind the giant was a serpent. And so David... Seeing this and recognising, well, who is this fool who sits there and, and starts cussing out the armies of God? You get this beautiful image of him like walking up to the rest of the soldiers and be like, who is this fool? Who does he think he is? He has absolutely no right. He has zero authority to speak what he is speaking over the armies of the living God. Someone better get up there and shut his mouth. And he's just bold and brash and brave. But Israel can't see the spiritual battle. They don't understand that they've already won, except for David. And so David's like, well, I'm going to do it. And so then he rocks up and he unleashes a monologue that Shakespeare would be proud of. You come against me with sword, spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. And we just love that image and this idea that actually the stone was the cause of death, but it wasn't the weapon of warfare. The weapon that he used was the name of God. And so we're engaging in this series. We're looking at who our adversary is. We're going to look at who our champion is. And then we're going to spend some time looking at the weapons that we have to fight this battle. Because we are in a spiritual war. We are in a spiritual battle, but we need to know how to fight We need to know how to fight. We need to know who our enemy is. We need to know what his devices are and how he would come against us. And we need to know how to take our stance. And that's really what this whole series is about. Recognizing that we have an enemy and an adversary who is a deceiver, an accuser, and a distractor. And that's the prophetic picture of David and Goliath. Yes, it's a true historical event, but it's a prophetic picture of the spiritual giant and the son of David who would come to destroy the spiritual giant and set God's people free for all eternity. Do you see that? That we serve the son of David, we serve the great champion. So I've been so excited about this series, and we looked briefly at this idea that actually modern thought is really struggling with the question of evil in the world. They actually don't have an answer for it with modern thinking and modern philosophy and psychology uh, but the Bible doesn't struggle with that problem because the Bible tells us that the root of evil comes from a personal spiritual devil. Right? It doesn't deny the fact that there's cause and effect. It doesn't deny that, uh, that human beings walk in sin and that there's a curse and that evil uh, happens and we perpetuate evil, but it says the root and the cause of all evil in the world is because of a supernatural evil force, a personal devil. And what we look at the fact is that generational abuse, generational sin, depravity, the cause of sickness, brokenness, torment in our world, all these things, they actually start with a simple whisper that happened in Genesis 3. Did God actually say? And through that, we see evil and the roots of evil in the world. That is the devil's play. And he has one weapon. We talked about the fact that he has one weapon, which is what Colossians 2 calls the charge of legal indebtedness. Uh, I'm giving a summary because last week was part one and this is part two. So we have this, this he has a weapon, the charge of legal indebtedness, but he has devices or schemes, as it says in Ephesians 6, which is that deception, accusation and distraction to blind the eyes of unbelievers. He's basically saying he's trying to blind the eyes to the fact that there is a weapon that he has against us, but that weapon, that charge in Christ has been destroyed. And so his whole play is to distract, deceive and accuse us from recognising where our salvation is, where our victory is, what weapons we have to stand against him. And I think just what I've been loving looking at this week and what God has just um, really just stirred my heart around is the fact that Our enemy might be mighty and he might be cunning and he might roar like a lion, but guess what? He's defeated. And his place, his eternal place, is fixed in stone. And that eternal place has been fixed by another lion. And more than that, our place has also been fixed. We don't need to fear, we don't need to believe the lies of that accuser because we can look at him and say, you might be speaking these lies and roaring like a lion, but I know where your place is, eternal condemnation. Guess where my place is? Not condemnation, but consecration. My eternal place is secure, not in pain, but in pleasure. Not in heartbreak, but in eternal hallelujahs, fixed in stone by another lion. The line of the tribe of Judah. I feel like preaching up here this morning. And that's who we're going to look at. The line of the tribe of Judah who has dealt with our enemy and is calling us to himself to walk in that victory, empowering us day by day and has given us weapons to fight. So what we're going to do is look at this line. The Lion of the Tribe of Judah. If you have your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll go back there. Ephesians 6 verse 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that so, so that you can, you'll be able to take your stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. So, this morning, what I want to look at is this verse 10 Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Who is this Lord? And what is the strength of his might that we're called to stand in? Who is the Lord and what is the strength of his might that we're called to stand in? The other week, we were at Mitcham Shopping Centre, Joe and I with the kids. We were uh, going to go get some things in the underground car park and the kids got to the footpath and they run off as they do. And as they ran off, Benji uh, ran past an Indian man wearing a turban who was pushing the trolleys. And we walked past and said, G'day mate, how are you going? And then we, in we went, we went up the escalators and we were going up the escalators. Benji runs up with this look of extraordinary joy on his face. And he grabs Joe and he just pulls her by the jacket, and he says, Mummy, Mummy, I saw a genie. <laughs> it was super cute. And we're like... Oh, no, mate, he's not a genie. <laughs> he's, he's not, well, and he's like, you know, you could, in his mind, he's obviously wrestling with this idea. We're trying to explain that this man's not a genie. He just has a different religion. But you see, in Benji's mind, his, we live in the Adelaide Hills, right? And there's not too many people roaming around the Adelaide Hills wearing turbans, are there? And so in Benji's mind, his experience of turbans is Aladdin, which, by the way, when we watched that the other day, I was like, whoa, this is way too scary for kids. I don't know. We like, went to turn that thing off. That's a really freaky movie. Anyway, side note. So he watched a bit of Aladdin, and in Aladdin, he sees turbans. Now, what's the standout feature of Aladdin? Not turbans. It's the genie. So in his mind, he's like, oh, turban? Aladdin? Genie. He's like, oh, my gosh, that guy's a genie. And so he, he makes this link between what he perceives or what he has experienced. And he says, well, that's therefore who that man must be. And I think sometimes we're actually like that in the church and in the world with Jesus, where we have, we've, we've heard a particular sermon or we've, uh, we've listened to some teaching, we've read something about him, we've read what someone posted on Twitter or we've grown up in the church, we've heard a few things and we hear a few things about Jesus and based on just a little bit, we just make this decision about that's who Jesus is. Because we perceive him a particular way, therefore that's what he must be. But just because you perceive Jesus to be something, doesn't mean that's what he is. Just because we have an interpretation. I've talked to so many people that are like, well, for me, Jesus is this. I'm like, I don't care what he is for you. He is who he is. He is who he's proved himself to be. You can't just say, oh, there's a turban, therefore genie. And I think sometimes the metaphor goes two ways as well. Like we perceive and so therefore we just put Jesus in our little box that we put aside to the side for religious times and we pull him out when we want him and occasionally use the name of Jesus for things that are appropriate for us. And then we have the whole genie mentality of, oh, I'm in a need, so please just give me. We put Jesus in this little box, the safe, little, secure Jesus. But that's not Jesus. That's not our Lord. And it's fascinating to me in the church how we are afraid of things like the devil. We, are, we, we freak out about these demonic things and yet we are so ignorant of the power of the one that we serve. We need to know our enemy, but for God's sake, let's know our saviour. Let's get to know him and let's know his power and his might. Because when you encounter that, oh my goodness, you realise, wow, the devil's not that big a deal. There's this awesome story of Martin Luther, the reformer, who woke up in his bed one day and he says the devil was sitting on his bed and he woke up and he looked at me and oh, it's just you and rolled over and went back to sleep. Because he knew who he served. He knew his saviour. He knew the power of his saviour. We should not be trembling and fear out our enemy. We should be trembling at the power of our saviour. C.S. Lewis. I went with C.S. Lewis a lot last week, but it's part two, so you're going to get some more. C.S. Lewis, in The line, the Witch and the Wardrobe, The Chronicles of Narnia. Oh, do you know this? The beaver is talking to Susan about Aslan. This is what he says. The true king of Narnia, he says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. (laughs) Lauren, getting my kids read on. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. (laughs) Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king. I tell you, he's the king. He's astonishing. Who is our Lord? He's Jesus Christ. He is so much greater, so much more incredible, so much more amazing than any box we could ever put him in. And my task this morning is to try to explain him to you. Have you ever been sitting in front of this glorious sunset and you ring someone up and you're like, hey, you need to come and see this sunset. Like, oh, I can't. I'm stuck inside. Describe it to me. And then you're like, well, it's orange <laughs> and red. And it's like bubbles of purple where the clouds. It never does it justice, does it? You can never like, do justice to the entity with words. But Jesus is awesome. He is so awesome. And I just want to encourage us this morning as we come around who this Saviour is, who our Lord is, to recognise that you have experienced maybe a facet of Jesus. So often we put him in the meek and mild, the lamb cuddling, kumbaya singing, softly spoken guru. That is not Jesus. That is a facet of his character. And some of you need that facet at times, but a facet is not a diamond, It is a part of the diamond and he is so much greater. He is ferocious. He is glorious. He is powerful. He is fiercely devoted to his people. He is wonderful. He is majestic. He is mighty to save. That's our Jesus. That is our Jesus. And I could go on and on and on, but I'll never do it just. So there is a man who did a pretty good job. So I want to take you there after John chapter 1. Verse 1 through 5. And John writes this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, John knew what he was doing here, right? This is John. This is the Apostle John. And you need to understand when John wrote this, he wrote this with intentionality. John is writing this at the end of his life. We're talking towards like 90 AD, right? All the other, the three other gospels have been written. Pretty well, all the, well, all the other disciples are dead. They've been martyred. He's the only one left who was walking with Jesus those three years. Right? So he's read these other gospels and at the same time he's hearing these murmurings because all of a sudden these people are coming in who never walked with Jesus. They didn't know Jesus like he knew Jesus and they're starting to teach. And they're starting to say things about Jesus that became really common in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. But they would say things like, well, Jesus, he, he wasn't really a man. He was just a spirit. He was God, but he was just God appearing as a spirit to his people. because So it, it means he didn't really suffer because how could God suffer? And so this teaching started to come out. And then there was this other teaching where people were saying, well, no, he was a man, but he wasn't, he wasn't God. We shouldn't worship him as God. He was just... He was just a prophet, he was just a great man who, who spoke well, and John, hearing all these murmurings, reading everything else, sets out with intentionality to declare something about the nature of Jesus. Because John's like, I I know this man. I put my head on his chest. I ate with him. I walked with him. I laughed with him. I cried with him. I fished with him for goodness' sakes. His mother lived with me until the day that she died. Like, he was a man. He was my friend. And don't you dare say he didn't suffer. Because when everyone else ran away, I was there. I was at the cross. And I saw those nails go in to his hands and to his feet. And I saw them pierce his side. I saw the crown of thorns go in. I saw the agony on his face. I heard the cry. I watched him die. Don't you tell me he didn't suffer. He was my friend, he was a man, but he was also my Lord. I saw him turn water to wine. I saw him walk on water. I saw him calm a storm that was going to envelop us. I saw him multiply bread and fish to feed thousands of people. I, I saw Him transfigured on a mountain. This is not just a man. This is God. And guess what else, friends? I saw the empty tomb. I ran there. I ran there. I ran there. And when I went inside, it was empty. It was empty. And there were Roman guards who were on guard. There was a stone that had sealed it. There's no way I could do that. There's some liars out there telling you that we overcame the Roman guards. I love their confidence, but no, I'm a fisherman man. I can't beat the special forces of the Roman Empire, but Jesus can. And that tomb was empty. And more than that, he then appeared to us and he spoke to us. And my friend Thomas put his hands in his hands. He cooked me breakfast on the beach. And then I saw him ascend up to heaven. I saw it with my own eyes. This isn't just my interpretation. This is who he is. And so he writes, he's got the ink and the quill or whatever he used, and he writes, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Do you see the intentionality, church? Do you see what he's setting out to do? And so when he writes this, for us this is a weird phrase, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's strange to us, but it's not to his ancient audience. Because in the ancient audience, this, this, the word word is the Greek word logos. Everyone say logos. logos. And to ancient Greek philosophers, the logos was this, uh, was this idea of a seed that caused life. That there existed this preeminent Uh, essence through which all life came. That was a common, well-held belief in ancient times. So if you were to go up to an ancient person and you were to talk to them about the Logos, they would go, oh yeah, yep, that makes sense. Yeah, the essence through which all things happen, the reason, the logic, the, the truth through which everything develops. And so John uses this language to speak into their culture. Side note, that's what we need to do as a church today. Amen? Amen. Let's come back. So he uses this language of logos that's common to them. And he says, you know that logos, the logos that brought life, you know that thing you're talking about? Well, guess what? That became flesh. That eternal preeminent force that you... No, is a man named Jesus Christ. And he says, and Jesus was with God as the Logos is with God, but he is God. And it brings about this beautiful image that later the church in the Nicene Creed and these other creeds would develop this Trinitarian theology, which is a beautiful thing. But what John is saying is that Jesus is God, he's God. It's a powerful image that he is using. He is not just man. He is not just spirit. He is God incarnate. Mighty, powerful. And then go to Revelation. Let's go to the end of the book. John shows us something else. It's the same writer and he's showing us something about Jesus. Revelation. We'll start at chapter 1 and we'll read from verse 17 and 18 and then we're going to jump over to chapter 5. This is our Lord. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand in me saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. And then if you go to Revelation chapter 5, there is just this awesome image of this Lord, this Jesus We'll read from verse 1, when I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written and on the back sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or earth, under the earth, was able to open the scroll and look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, John. John. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures uh, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who's seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. And from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Friends, can we get some perspective? Can we just get some perspective as we head into this series on swords and spears, on spiritual warfare? Can you for one moment step back from your interpretation or your perception of who Jesus is And can you just embrace who he really is? This ferocious lion of the tribe of Judah who has crushed the enemy under his feet. He is mighty to save, friends. He is mighty to save. This is our Jesus. This is our Lord. Now this reveals two key things. The first thing is this. If he is who he says he is and who he's proclaimed and proved himself to be by raising from the dead, we need to know, one, Satan is terrified of him. Matthew eight twenty nine. 29. Jesus goes to the land of the Gadarenes and two demon-possessed men come from the tombs. They met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. And these men appear before Jesus. What do you want from us, son of God? They shouted, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? They're trembling with fear before the Son of God. Mark 1, they went to Capernaum. When the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught at one who had authority. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. James two nineteen, it says, You believe in God, good, even the demons believe, and shudder. The enemy's forces are petrified of Jesus. We walk in the name of Jesus. We are found in Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are a part of his church. Oh, we're going to get into this in the next few weeks. Know your authority. Know your place in Christ. They are terrified of him. Second key point, Jesus has power and authority over the devil. Interestingly, when Jesus is being tempted by the enemy, he allows Satan to tempt him a few times. But the moment he says, away from me, Matthew 4, verse 10 and 11. What does the devil do? He spins and leaves because he has to, because Jesus has commanded him to. Do you know, I've been so sturdy in my heart. You got a little bit more time? I've been so stirred in my heart this week over Luke 22, that picture of Peter. You know when Peter um, is sitting there with Jesus and he's saying, I'll never deny you, I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, do you know what? You're going to. And Peter's like so brash and bold in this moment. And Jesus says this beautiful thing in verse 31, 32. He says, Peter, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you. And he goes, but I have prayed. He's like, Peter, I have prayed for you. And he says, and when you return, strengthen your brothers. Notice something, he doesn't say, if you return. Jesus doesn't say, Peter, I'm praying for you, I'm believing and I'm hoping that you will return. No, no, no. He's like, Peter, it's like tearing the window of heaven back, just like we see in Job. Satan's approach before God and says, I want to sift Peter. I need to sift Peter. And, and God's like, okay, you can sift Peter. And Jesus is like, yeah, but I'm interceding for you, Peter. I am standing for you, Peter. And I am declaring that you might be sifted, but your faith will not fail, my friend. And when you return, it is concrete, it's set in stone. I'm holding your faith. When you return strengthen your brothers. He's like, you need to be sifted because there's pride in you that needs to be broken. But when you're broken, you'll be humbled. And when you're humbled, you'll be ready. The tears will bring about a repentance in you that will prepare you for the purpose that I have for you. And you will become a rock, Peter. And on that rock, I'll build my church. And guess what? That enemy who sifted you, his gates will never prevail against you. The church that I am building. Jesus has authority over the enemy. And friends, this is why Easter is so significant. Because this is who our Jesus is. This is who our champion is. This is who our Lord is. So what is the strength of his might? What is the strength of his might? it said in Ephesians 6? It said, stand in the strength of his might. What is that strength? And if you were here on Friday, you would have seen that strength. Because you know what? Jesus intentionally goes to the cross. Genesis three, fourteen and fifteen. You got that up there, Luke? Right at the beginning, the Genesis story. The enemy's sent to earth and he comes against Adam and Eve and they make a bad decision and they choose to reject their God and believe this guy. And then, so God meets Adam and he says this, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, meaning her offspring, meaning the seed of Mary, Jesus, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What is that saying? It's saying that from the beginning of time, the Bible tells us in Revelation that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's a hard concept to wrap your head around. I know that. But it's saying that God's purposes were clear and plain from before Satan even fell. That he would bring glory to his name, that he would redeem humanity and keep humanity in intimate, perfect relationship with himself by becoming flesh and by suffering in order to bring life. That victory is bought through sacrifice. That the strength of his might is not what Lucifer thought it was. It is not stamping your scepter and saying, look how great I am. It is by Being, knowing who you are. Christ, knowing, as Philippians 2 says, being in very nature God, not considering equality with God, something to be grasped. But it's coming to that which was his own and it's choosing to lay down your life, allowing the serpent to strike you, allowing the serpent to wound you and inflict pain so that you could bring about victory. Victory. Because as we saw last week, what is the weapon of the enemy? He knows he's defeated. He knows his eternal condemnation. He knows his place in eternity. But he had one weapon and that was the charge of legal indebtedness. It was the fact that you and I are sinners that we make mistakes, we are not perfect and we cannot dwell in perfect relationship with a holy God. And that was his charge. That was his card. That was his ace of spades that he had to hold before God. And so God, knowing this, says the only way to redeem that and break that curse and set my people free is to take on flesh, is to become that which I created and take death to the grave. So that when the accuser stands before him with his card of accusation, He's got nothing to do. He's got nothing to say. He's got no accusations that are valid. None. They've been wiped clean. They've been completely made new. And that's why the Bible says in Colossians 2 that he's making a public spectacle over them. Yeah? He's disarming the powers because he's taking the weapon away. And the only way he can take the weapon away is to take death to the grave. And so life submits itself to death, and death is like, yeah, we got life, but life can't be held by death. And so death goes to the grave with life, thinking, yes, we've taken life, and then it realises, uh-oh, life has taken me here. We're in an awful lot of trouble. And so Jesus rises from the grave, forever leaving the curse of sin and death in the grave. Do you see that? The curse of sin and death is broken. It has been destroyed in Christ and for all who would believe in him and walk in faith with him. That is the strength of his might. Satan comes and his sin was his pride but Jesus' victory was his sacrifice. His victory, the strength of his might is in going to the grave. And as he goes to that grave he takes that charge of legal indebtedness and he hammers it into the cross and his blood washes over it and washes it clean for all eternity as far as the east is from the west so that every single person who would call on his name would stand in full assurance of faith knowing that I have been set free. It's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says this. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, he uses that same Ephesians 6 phrase again, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Band, you can come up. Stand firm. Stand firm in what? In the strength of his might. Stand firm in his sacrifice for you. And here's the thing. If he died and he went to the grave and he didn't rise, then the curse of sin and death is still legitimate. Because it means death took him and death was victorious. But guess what? The tomb was empty. It was empty. It was empty, friends. Jesus is alive. He is alive forevermore. The eternal Logos, the Word of God, took on flesh and now for all eternity standing in His resurrected, redeemed body, He stands at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us as He interceded for Peter on that day. All eternity. Do you understand that? Jesus Gave up the eternal spirit, Logos, took on flesh, and now for all eternity he is flesh at the right hand of the Father. When we get to heaven, Jesus, the man, the God man, will be there. He won't be an ethereal spirit, he will be the God man. We will see the holes in his hands and the holes in his feet. We will see the marks in his head and the scar on his side. We will see that in heaven. He is the Lamb that was slain. One appearing before the elders as a lamb that was slain. He is a lion who became a lamb so that we could have life. You're not getting excited enough. That's great, bro. This is our God. This is who we serve. This is our Savior. Friends, this Easter, do you know your Savior? Do you know your Saviour? Do you see your Saviour? This mighty, powerful lion of the tribe of Judah who willingly laid down his life knowing that in laying down his life he would destroy the one weapon our enemy has. And so in Matthew 28, as he ascends to the Father, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And then what does he say? He says, now you go. What's he saying? He's saying, I give you authority. He took the keys of death and Hades from the enemy. He put those keys in the hands of his church. And he says, no longer will you be enslaved to the enemy, but you have the authority that I have bought for you, that I've given to you at the cross And you will carry that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you are supposed to advance, not retreat. May we be a church that is advancing, not retreating. May you in your life, your Christian life, may you be advancing, not retreating. May you be walking in the strength of His might. And when the enemy comes to accuse, deceive and distract you, stand firm and just go to Jesus. Go to the cross. Put on that armour. Right? The gospel, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith. Get the sword out. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. The peace surpasses all understanding and start walking in the power of His might, which He bought for you at the cross. Stand to your feet. Respond to a Savior like this? How do we respond to a Savior like this? You've got a choice. You can go home, you can put him back in his little Jesus box in the corner of your coffee table that you want to pull out every now and then, and go on living your life, or you can surrender. And you can open your heart to this King, to the line of the tribe of Judah. You can surrender your life to Him and you can say, I'm yours. Take every part of me, consume me, fill me and empower me to live this life. So as we close our eyes, I want to pray for you that we would do just that. And if that's you, I want you to repeat this after me as we pray dear Lord I love you I give my life to you I don't want to keep you in a box any longer I want to be surrendered to you let me walk in the strength of your might you are my Lord and my Saviour and my King I love you and I give you honour and glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.